0: Good morning. morning. Today's scripture passage is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it, it, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread.
1: All right. Can you guys hear me? Got a new mic and it feels like a brain scanner. Um, hi, I'm Leo. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning. Um, I'm going to talk to you guys today. I know Tommy's kind of been going through this series on ecclesiology Uh, A couple weeks ago. We were talking about the closed circle last week was the dotted circle and so I felt like a kind of a good segue going into the, uh The half circle is this, uh concept of hospitality Uh, so we're going to talk about that today We're going to get back to this text and kind of get into the underlying message here that luke is trying to give us um Henry Nowen, who here has heard of Henry Nowen? Raise your hand. If you haven't heard of Henry Nowen, Dutch, you know he's a former Dutch priest, theologian, writer, just amazing thinker. He, his work is fascinating. Uh, check him out. He's got some amazing books. Um, Henry Nowen says that, that if there's a concept worth getting right, if there's a concept from the ancient world worth restoring, it's the concept of hospitality.) Um, So today we're going to talk a little bit about ancient hospitality, like what it was in the Greco-Roman context, uh, what it looked like in the first century, what it looked like for the early Christians. Um, And then we'll get into this text a little bit and, uh, you know, I'll give you guys some postures and some marks for you guys to take home and and put into practice, like for daily life, you know, see if we can practice like gospel hospitality, uh, not just in our Sunday gatherings, but wherever we go, Right. So I'm gonna pray and get started because there's some things here that we're gonna get into. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people, Father. Thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Um, be present. I invite you, Holy Spirit. You're welcomed in this moment uh, to just do a work in us. Um, speak through me. Help me remember everything that I studied for this and everything that I prepared. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, I'm gonna try to multitask. Uh, so I got split screens here. I'm gonna, I hope I do this right. If not, I'm gonna have to refer to IT. Uh, so uh, what do you think about when you hear, when you like hear the word hospitality, right? We might like think of dinner parties and like entertaining folks, like inviting people over and like giving them a tour of the house, showing them your black splash and all that. Um, like, I mean, you know, we have sort of this mindset, right, of hospitality, like I'm opening our doors to people that are sort of, you know, that we have common interests with, people that we have things in common with, right? These are relatively like closed events, right? They're, they're really not open uh, in, in, in most cases to people like outside of friends and family. Uh, hopefully, some of us uh, have opened our doors to, to, to people outside of that circle, but more or less, this is what we get sort of in Western, you know, in our Western mindset, right? Um, We may think like more economically, like we might think of like the service industry, hotels, Airbnbs, and like restaurants, you know, all these type of things may come to mind when we think about hospitality. Uh, I grew up in West Tampa, like just east of Raymond James Stadium. We used to call it Little Cuba um, because it was a predominantly Caribbean-American, still is to this day, uh, neighborhood. And like when I think of hospitality, my memory sort of goes back to those times when like I would... Be riding my bike up and down the block, and so we had like in West Tampa, like back then there were and still to this day there's like bungalow-style homes with these big porches, and I remember like you you'd ride your bike down and you could smell like what house was like cooking, like this person like they were cooking arroz con gandule and they were cooking you know Spanish steak and black beans and rice. Like it was it was just an amazing time for me, but in particular I remember like the porch being like this hub of belonging and connection for the community you know, like, my grandfather would be sitting out on his porch, and he would have, like, folks coming over, like, just playing dominoes and just hanging out, talking, you know, about Cuba and Castro and all these other things, and like, but it was like this, it was like this open porch for the neighborhood, and I just thought that was, like, a beautiful picture uh, uh, at that time, and so when I think of uh, hospitality, I think of those times, and so, but all in all, like, we all have these modern expressions of hospitality, but ultimately they all fall short, you know, of, of God's hospitality. It's vastly different, and we're going to get into that. Um, so when I talk about, like, gospel hospitality, Scripture is packed with stories of hospitality. Um, from th- throughout the biblical narrative, we, there are all sorts of sort of... Uh, Loud versions of hospitality and not so loud versions of hospitality where God is doing something where God visits, where he's using a host, or he comes as a host, and he or he comes as a guest or he comes as or, or between guest and host. And so it's sort of along the lines of what we've been talking about or what Tommy's been talking about over the past few weeks, this dynamic between guest and host, and when are we supposed to be the host and when are we supposed to be the guest? And so we see this throughout the text, but ultimately, like the early Christians, they would refer back to um the incarnation the incarnation is this beautiful picture of god's welcome into his new creation family like god dwelling with us in john 1 it says that he he took home he took residence like he tabernacled with us he set up like he set up shop here and he gives us like flesh and blood expression of god's hospitality and so god extends hospitality to humankind through jesus This heavenly stranger who takes the role of hosts and invites humans into this reoriented way of life, welcoming them into the culture of God's kingdom, where where God is king and Caesar is not, right? Where our lives, like, and where their lives became intertwined with the people around them in new ways. This is where I'm going to multitask. Got it? I did it. I did it, philoxenia. So in the New Testament, the main Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia. Say it with me, philoxenia. That was good. Charity, I heard you. Um, Phileo, this is like two words in one, phileo, right? Phileo is this word for love and affection for the other. Um, And then you got xenos, which is this word for strangers. So hospitality in the New Testament is love and care for the stranger or anybody in need of help. And I want us to have a clear picture as I move along in this, um, in this message. I want us to have a clear picture of what the word stranger actually means. Uh, I'm going to refer back to Henry Nowen. Check him out. Henry Nowen, he defines strangers, and, I, and I, really, I really vibe with his definition. Strangers for Henry Nowen, is anybody estranged from their own past, their own culture, their own country, their neighbors, their friends, their family, from their deepest self, and estranged from God? So when we think of ter- and when we think of the, the term stranger moving forward, I want us to have this in our in our mindset. So in the first century, Greco-Roman communities were were super tribalistic, very tight knit. Like, think about like the nightmare HOA community. Multiply that by like a hundred, and you have like the Greco-Roman context. Greco-Roman con- like outside of like the non-elite, like in the rural lands, this is. They were very highly tribalistic, and so um, where everybody sort of had the responsibility to maintain the continuity and the health of the community. Um, I talked I talked about this a while back uh, about how different the first century Greco-Roman villages, regions were compared to our modern neighborhoods, where um, things are a lot different. So, because of these highly concentrated pockets of tribalism, this. Made it really challenging for travelers and strangers as they passed through the village. Anybody that was new, anybody that would come through a village, would automatically be looked at with hostility, with suspicion, like somebody that could be a potential threat to the community and the health of the community. This was the dominant mindset in the first century Greco Roman, like non high society community. So if you were a first century Greco-Roman citizen, your hospitality was motivated by one of three things. The first one is wrath. Did I get that? Do it? Good. Wrath of the stranger. You had a fear of the wrath of the stranger. So th- this is actually a doormat that people would put in front of their doors to, like, ward off the evil eye. Um, and actually, this concept is actually still lives on uh, in, in, in my culture, in, La- in the Latino culture, this concept of the evil eye. And so this was placed in front of doors to ward off like, any potential threats, any potential curses from just somebody's evil eye. So the wrath of the stranger was this idea that anybody coming through that was a stranger that, was not familiar, like, like, that you weren't familiar with um, had either magical powers or the ability to like, cast spells on this community. Therefore overthrowing you know, the heads of the community and like, stealing from residents. So this would be your motivation, then, to, like, extend hospitality to this person. So in this case, like, hospitality was this way of, like, neutralizing the potential threat. And so designated people in the community are obligated, We're obligated to host these strangers and, like, pour out all of this extravagant amount of hospitality to, like, quell any potential threat from this stranger. And so they'd open their doors, they'd provide meals, like, They'd wash their feet. They'd even assign them, like, a guide to, to like, lead them out the next day to the, to the city limits. It was, like that, it was, like, that, you know, intense. Um, also, there was this custom where if you opened your doors to a stranger, hosts would uh, sort of refrain from asking for the identity and the place of origin of the stranger until after the meal. I want us to, like, remember that because I'm going to refer back to this. Hosts were refrained from asking for the, for the stranger's identity and their place of origin until after the meal. And the fear there was if you asked for their identity, then you could potentially just ruin the whole dynamic and they could get upset and your village is cursed. The next fear or the next like motivating factor that might motivate your, 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 your generosity, your hospitality, is this fear of Zeus. Um, Like aside from being the supreme god of the Greek pantheon, Zeus was also known as the god of hospitality. His name was Zeus Zenos, the god of hospitality. Homer actually wrote a legend where Zeus would go down to earth and he would test the hospitality of of humankind. And so he would recruit his son Hermes and they would disguise themselves as like humble travelers and they go knocking door to door... Testing people's hospitality. Concealing their identity and just roaming around like asking for lodging. And anybody that didn't open their doors, anybody that wasn't generous, he'd put a curse on them. He'd punish them in some way. And so any stranger could potentially be Zeus in this world. So if you turned away a stranger, you were essentially turning away like the defender of strangers, right? So every stranger was viewed as like having this protection of Zeus. Um, and then the, this other motivating factor was this concept of guest friendship, right? Um, once the stranger checked off and they weren't Zeus and they weren't like, they didn't have magical powers, then you could sort of enter into this relationship that's called guest friendship, where you like make a vow, like a long term relationship. You exchange gifts and you make a vow to create this long term relationship where if I'm in your village, you're gonna protect me from the threats. Uh, From your villagers and the hostilities from your villagers, and if you're in mine, I'm going to protect you. So it's this sort of vow of protection and provision, uh, this reciprocal thing. Um, But underlying, underlying this dynamic is this sort of this power dynamic. So whoever played the role of host had the had the power in the relationship, and it was just there was like there was nothing altruistic about this. There was nothing selfless about this. It was a power play. In, in a highly stratified, like Greco-Roman society, it was all about gaining power and honor. So now this is this is in non-elite communities. Like in high society, in, in, in the high society of that time, hospitality was common practice between the rich. Um, it was just like a social device. A few months back I talked about the cursus sonorum. Who remembers that? Cursus Norman. All right, three people. Great, awesome. Um, <laughs> No, so it's just, it's just this, it's like this ladder of ascension, right, to getting to higher ranks in society. And so hospitality for the rich in this context was like this social device to get you greater access to people with power, right? It was it was like the, people would throw like these extravagant meals, and they would get like these rare meats and rare wines, and it would just, it would be broadcast all over the village, and, and then that would sort of check off somebody's, you know, uh, a hospitality checkbox and it would increase their 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 honor credit score that everybody had like there was this honor credit score that everybody had and and i you know we talked about how in philippi there were inscriptions everywhere it was the city that had the most inscriptions and so if you knew how to throw parties if you knew how to entertain then you're you know you're this was put on your inscription and people knew it and it would raise your honor and so this is the world that luke is writing in when we when we read uh when we read his gospel uh luke 24 through 35. Um, a world where the practices were largely formed, like the hospitality practices were largely formed out of fear or the desire for power and, and greater access. A, a world where people believed that deities would disguise themselves and go around testing humans' ability to, to provide hospitality and be generous. So some fun facts before we get into this passage. And uh, Tommy mentioned this last week, and he didn't know I was actually going to bring this patch. so I'm like, cool, all right, we're vibing here. Um, but some fun facts about Luke's gospel. If you like to eat and if you like food, read Luke's gospel. I think that's probably why I gravitate towards it. There's a lot of food talk in the gospel. I mean, there's meals, there's banquets, like Jesus is sitting with like you know, sinners and tax collectors, and he's doing this in front of, like, the, you know, the law keepers and all this, and it's just, he's just destabilizing all kinds of things in, in you know, in the culture, but if you like to eat, read Luke's gospel, um, so, and the thing is, in Luke's gospel, like, these hospitality elements that, that you read throughout, like, from beginning to end, and actually, this is, this, is the, this is the end of his gospel, so he, like, it just, it flows throughout. And he, it's like this device that he uses. Actually, scholars actually argue that it, it forms a structure and the framework for his gospel. It moves it along. And so it's very much like this literary device that, that Luke uses. And so, for, and so the Jesus that Luke presents us is a Jesus that uses hospitality elements to like disrupt cultural norms at the table and at the meal. And give visibility to the poor and, and, and the dehumanized and the marginalized. And so for Luke, food was like this great equalizer, and the table was like this platform to display, like, God's divine solidarity with people that aren't used to being supported and cared for in that way, amen? So Luke highlights this throughout his gospel. I mean, there's 19 different meals going on in the gospel that's unique compared to the other synoptic Gospels. So when we get to this point here where, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. Um, so by the time we get to Luke 24, guys, by the time we get to Luke 24, like the reader would have been really well acquainted with, with the hospitality motif of, of Luke's Gospel, Right? And so when we get to Luke 24, we have these two disciples walking away from Jerusalem. Like they're walking away from, from like where God is working, where God is doing something. And they're taking this road that leads to Emmaus, and they're talking about everything that's happened. And, and then, you know, suddenly this stranger pulls up, who's Jesus, like, in disguise. He pulls up, and he's like, yo, what's going on? And he's like, the disciples are like, you talking about have you not heard like our, our leader is gone this movement is over you know now we have like uh women coming to us and saying that the tomb is empty and that you know uh this move like it's, it's over like but we're, we're hearing rumors that the, that that he might have resurrected but we don't know what's going on and they're frustrated and all these things are going on and this Jesus in like unrecognizable form he pulls up and and he's like you're foolish Let me explain this to you. And he opens up the text. He opens up the scriptures to them. And he starts to, starts to talk to them about, about the promises and, and the promises of the prophets and all these things. And so he goes off and it starts to get dark. And he's ready to move onward. And the disciples tell him, yo, like, you don't need to go out in the nighttime. Let me open my doors to you. And they invite him in. And so they prepare a table and they take the role, they take the role of these of of a good host. And Jesus comes in, still a stranger, still unrecognizable. And then Luke tells us that suddenly this stranger all of a sudden takes the role of host. And the hosts now are guests. And he breaks the bread, and all of a sudden, they recognize him. And he disappears. And so they return to Jerusalem, like fully convinced of the resurrected Lord. And so Luke, who is constantly using hospitality elements to drive his narrative, is doing the same thing here to cap off his gospel. He presents Jesus as this unrecognizable stranger. and scholars actually argue that, that this is actually Luke, like taking the Homeric legend of Zeus and Hermes as these disguised deities going around testing people's hospitality. Luke is flipping this around now and giving us a new picture, and a new framework. And his disciples have become hosts. And they extend hospitality, like not out of fear or self-interest, but they do it out of compassion and care because they didn't want this stranger to continue onward on his journey at nighttime. There was no power play here. They weren't like trying to get one up on somebody. They weren't afraid that this was Zeus. They weren't afraid that this was, like, somebody who had magical powers. They just cared for this stranger. They didn't want him to continue at night because they knew that on that road at night, there were thieves and there were bandits. So Luke is already giving us, like, this entirely different picture than than what would have been accustomed in that world and in that time. And so the table is set, and this stranger become host, Hosts become guests, the bread is broken, and Luke is showing us a God that doesn't wait till the meal's over to reveal his identity. It's at the table where the unrecognizable stranger becomes the revealed resurrected Lord. Not after the meal, during the meal. Because at the meal, at the table, is where God is present and is where he shows himself and it's where he reveals himself and it's where the spirit is working between guest and host. And he's giving us a picture here, Luke, is of what God's hospitality looks like compared to Greco-Roman, Homeric hospitality in that time. Amen? And this was revolutionary. This was revolutionary what they were doing and what they were setting the stage for and how the early Christians practiced it. And so especially in the half circle, which Tommy will talk to you guys about that next week, where we become the guest, this is super important that we understand this dynamic of hospitality and what it means to like accept the, the, the potential that you don't need to be the host in every space, that it's okay to be a guest because God is present either way at the table. Amen? And so in this passage, we get some glimpses of what hospitality looks like. Number one, Instead of shunning or being afraid or exploiting the stranger, yeah. Instead of shunning, being afraid, or exploiting the stranger, the disciples welcome him to their journey. Willie Jennings, theologian, uh, he has great commentary in the book of Acts. Um, check it out. He says, faith is always in need of company and support. Sometimes, and I've, I've fallen into this mindset as well, where we think that, the people that conform us and shape us and disciple us are only the people that we share theological similarities with. And I beg to differ. I've had experiences where God has moved and been present in, through somebody that I would have never expected. And it's important that we understand that. We may disagree, like, on several fronts, But it's like we take the mindset of, I want to be a part of what God is doing in this space and in your life. Just because we disagree doesn't mean that God isn't doing something. Um, As a matter of fact, and I don't have this up there, Hebrews 13, 1 through 2 says, Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Not beautiful. Always, and we're not just talking about hospitality, like physical hospitality where we open our doors to people, but like being able to open like your own mind and your own heart to people, letting them in, even if you disagree, because perhaps God is doing something in that. Perhaps the spirit is active in that moment and God wants to be present and God wants to transform and heal things, not just in you, but in them, amen? Number two, The disciples knew that when it was their time to talk and when it wasn't. Like they knew how to listen. And they took the posture of guests and made space to receive, to listen, and to learn and be transformed by the stranger. In a society like, and and this happens to me all the time, and I'm working on this. Like when I'm having a conversation with somebody, they could be sharing something, but I'm already like in the back of my mind thinking about what I'm going to say next or what advice I'm going to give them. We got to learn how to like steal that. We got to learn how to like be at peace with simply like listening and learning and receiving. And they may come from an entirely different background and an entirely different theological tradition. Shoot, they might not even have a church background. But we have to learn to listen I've been transformed so many times by folks who I mean it, it makes me even emotional now thinking about it because over the past few years, you know, I've had some 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 personal challenges. We all go through them, right? And, and and the people that have that have sort of discipled me, formed me, helped me, advised me in this time have been people that I would have least expected it. No Bible degrees, no seminary training. Just people trying to have a relationship with God. Amen? And number three, it's already up there. Um, let's click on the trigger. Unlike the Greco-Roman custom, the stranger's identity is revealed after, not during the meal, but after the meal. So God's hospitality in any of the three circles is the creation of a space where strangers around us are seen and not invisible. When God is in a place The unseen are seen, and it's okay to step back and allow that dynamic to play out and just be a part of what God is doing, and in that, we're practicing hospitality, amen? So hospitality is much more than like opening our doors to strangers or something that we do on Sunday gatherings, like it's a fundamental attitude. It's a posture that we take, and it's expressed in a variety of ways. It's a posture of surrender and openness to allow what the Spirit is doing in somebody else. And that that can be a part of your own journey. And so no matter which of the three circles we find ourselves in, we play a role, like either as this good guest, still carrying the presence of God, but like submitting to the hospitality of the other, listening, remaining open to receive from what the Spirit is doing in that space and in that person, or as a good host to where we're like mediating the hospitality of God towards those around us at the table or otherwise. Amen? Amen. So this is how the early Christians saw themselves as recipients of God's hospitality, hosts of his presence, but guests of what the spirit was doing in that time and place. So like it was this dual role that they played and that they saw themselves participating in. To them extending God's welcome to strangers, to the poor, to the sick, to the widows, you know, to the, to those in need. Like this was an act of devotion, it was an act of worship. It was something that they just did because it was an outgrowth of their faith and allegiance in Christ. They didn't do it out of fear. It wasn't like fear-based. It wasn't like based off of like how I can gain power in this relationship or how I can, you know, how I can be part of something politically. But it was something about, of, it was just something that emerged from them because of the work that the Spirit was doing in them. And now they wanted to like extend that forth. They didn't want to just contain it. Rodney Stark, professor of sociology and religion, he did a wonderful study on like, on like how the early church spread so rapidly in the first like four or five centuries. The name of the book is *The Rise of Christianity*. Check it out; it's really fascinating. He uses socio-scientific data to like survey how it spread, and, and how it was so like attractive to people across the socioeconomic spectrum, from the from the poor to the rich, and. And this is all, like, despite public persecutions, despite, like, the injustices, um, you know, despite, like, conspiracy theories and rumors that were floating around about Christians being carnivores and, and incestuous and all these other things, despite all of these rumors, it still grew. It still spread rapidly. And why is that? And he concluded that to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christians offered charity and hope. The cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christians provided an immediate basis for attachments. The cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians provided a new and expanded sense of family. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christians offered effective nursing services. They were at the forefront. When everybody else ran away from the city, when everybody else left everybody behind during, these, during epidemics and during all of these disasters, Christians stayed behind. The early Christians stayed behind and provided care and generosity and kindness in such a way that it was attractive to, to, from the rich to the poor. And so for the early Christians, hospitality, why it was revolutionary is because it wasn't based off of reciprocity. They didn't offer hospitality in hoping that they would get, gain something back. They gave hospitality to people that they knew couldn't reciprocate it back. That was revolutionary in its time. And so this is how they lived out their faith, open to wherever the Spirit was leading them, even in uncharted cultures and traditions. They didn't care. They simply saw themselves as flesh and blood blood extensions of God's hospitality. This was so much a part of their lives that um, Julian the Apostate, who was Roman emperor in the first century, he said the following, atheism, which was this term back then, the Christians didn't believe in the pagan gods, so they were, they were deemed atheists, the irony, um, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galatians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Remember, this is the emperor speaking. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them, they saw a need and they offered presents. They saw a need and they offered care. They saw a need and they extended a family. And when there were cultural and theological tensions, they prepared a table. And allow the spirit to like bring these tensions to the surface. And ponder and discern what to do. And seek out divine instruction on how to work this out. Between the two parties, three parties or whatever. The table was the place where the spirit did the work. Amen? Like the table was the place where things were leveled. And where divisions were healed. And so the early Christians... They made room for this. They made room to converse about differences at the table. And they surrendered their biases and their privilege and allowed the spirit to do what it wanted to do. What he wanted to do. And so what are the marks of God's hospitality? I'm gonna leave you guys with some like, daily postures. Um, throughout church history, Christians have pointed to various stories in scripture that have modeled like how to embody God's hospitality in daily life. Um, they look for certain characteristics. Like they, you know, they referred back a lot to Abraham and Sarah like at the Oaks of Mamre where they, where they opened their doors to these, these three strangers who ended up becoming angels and she ended up becoming, you know, they ended up becoming pregnant a year later and all the, or nine months later. And so all these things, not a year later, that would be weird. Um, they also refer back to the Gospel of John. There's a lot of hospitality elements in the Gospel of John. And then Luke, we already know. So some of the Marks, Number one is readiness. The idea and the expectation that in ordinary moments, God is making room for us to extend hospitality to those in need around us. And this comes from time spent, like, pondering and listening and discerning where the need is and what it looks like to that person. I think it's important, like, if, if, there's, if there's something that we can come away with today especially is hospitality is contextual. Like what looks like generosity and kindness and, and hospitality to one person, to one culture, to one people group might not look like hospitality, kindness to another. And that's where surrendering our hostness, right, I just created a word, surrendering our hostness and taking upon the role of guest and seeing how God is working in this space is important for us. So that we don't come like with all of this hospitality and it's not received that way. I've actually experienced that myself. If you guys want to talk about it, we'll talk about it afterwards. Um, so maybe a posture of surrender and listening and learning is how God's hospitality breaks into a space. Number two, risk. Hospitality might be disruptive. Maybe this so-called stranger brings a new frame of reference that disrupts your entire way of thinking. Listening to stories and experiences um, that bring light to our shortcomings. In in, um, in liberation theology, there's a term called God talk, and it's how people outside of our context, outside of our culture, you know, uh, talk about God, how they imagine God, and and how they like how they frame him, how their experiences, the stories they share, and it's important that we're open to those stories, that we're open to the risk that God is at work at the table, and that wherever. And that the outcome might not be like what we expect. And number three, repentance. The idea of turning or changing from one frame to another. Like this isn't repentance, you know, it, it, what, maybe what we're accustomed to. But this is like a change of mind, right? This is a turning. This is going from one frame to another. This is like in the dotted and the half circle, God's knowing that God's hospitality can change us knowing that God's hospitality can change us through somebody else. When the two disciples welcomed the stranger, their entire frame of reference was turned. Their journey was reoriented. They were walking away from Jerusalem, and when it was revealed that this stranger was now Jesus and that he had done something, they were reoriented and they walked back to Jerusalem, to the place where God was doing a work. And so to be open to the possibility that your willingness to extend hospitality in any of this in the three circles, right, closed, dotted, or half, in any of these three circles, your life may be completely reoriented. And I think, oftentimes, it's for the better. Amen. So, I'm going to close here. Uh, we're going to we're going to do the Lord's prayer. After the Lord's prayer, I want to do a cool little dynamic that comes from my old church tradition. I didn't deconstruct because I think it's good. Um, so let's, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. If you guys want to rise, we'll read the Lord's Prayer. Is that it? All right, All right say with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so I want you guys, if you feel comfortable, turn to somebody that you haven't interacted with a lot. Say hello, this bump, however you want to do it. Say hello to a neighbor around you, somebody that you're not familiar with, somebody that, you know, may be a stranger to you. Say hello. Welcome them. Give them God's hospitality.